0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number two of The Shaping of Middle-Earth. Welcome back. So, tonight, we are, um, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna be, we're moving (laughs) swiftly and with alacrity, uh, through more slides than you will even believe. Um, we got, uh, more than halfway through the sketch, or not the, yes, the sketch, uh, not the quinta, but the sketch uh, last time, um, and so uh, I, I want to resume there. We were up to about Baron and Luthien. I want to, so I want to resume there. Look at uh, a few things from the end of the sketch, especially, and then shift to looking at the nineteen thirty quinta. Um, but first, um, uh, first, qu- quickly, some announcements. Uh, two quick announcements. First is. Uh, our spring classes have started this semester there is still time to enroll uh, you think about uh, if you so if you haven't signed up yet there's still time to and I encourage you to consider signing up for my modern fantasy class or for dr. Andrew Higgins's uh, 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 language invention through Tolkien class uh, which will be uh, which, which is just again such a neat opportunity in that class not just to learn elvish not only to learn elvish but not only to learn elvish uh, but to be Learning about Tolkien's whole language invention process and how his language has developed over time. Um, So cool. Um, Anyway, so I just wanted to encourage you to look into that. There is still some time, um, but uh, that time is fast running out. So uh, just remember that. And then the second thing is uh, to tell you about an upcoming event it's a kind of a peculiar upcoming event. Uh, I'm not gonna uh, 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 make any bones about that, but uh, it's an unusual uh, upcoming event, and that is the Great Chicken Run. Um, so, I don't even know how to explain this, like, just starting at the beginning will take too long. Um, there's too much. I will sum up. Uh, so on Saturday, January 30th, I am going to be spending about eight-ish hours um, uh, streaming live while I run on foot from Mikkel Delving to Minas Tirith in the form of a chicken. Um. It's one of those things which, if you play Lord of the Rings online, you'll know just what I'm talking about, and if you don't, you'll have the faintest idea what I'm talking about, but take my word for it, Uh, we can... um, we can we can do that. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So we're gonna do we're gonna do. Th- this is the uh, follow up to uh, uh, to our fundraising campaign where we, we promised we would do this if uh, uh, if we raised enough money and we did. So uh, I'm doing the Great Minas Tirith Chicken Run and I'm really looking forward to touring around. I've they, they for those of you who don't play the game, they just opened Minas Tirith in the game a couple months ago. I've never seen it uh, and I'm really keen to uh, wander the streets of Minas Tirith and see what they've done with it. I've heard, for instance, that there are um, sort of plaques and statues that represent all of the kings of Gondor, and you can find them all over the city. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to be dashing all over the city in the form of a chicken, um, and uh, uh, and uh, examining stuff uh, until my time runs out. So, anyway, uh, as I said, it's a rather unusual um, uh, event, but Saturday, the thirtieth of January is when that's going down. Karita, what happens if I die? We don't. We don't want to think about what happens if I die. Yeah, you, you have to start over completely uh, if you die. So if I were to, if I were to like uh, run in the form of a chicken from Mickle Delving like all the way to the Ramos and get randomly killed by something there, I might cry. <laughs> but I hope that that won't happen. Um, so we're we're gonna we're gonna we're going to we're going to hope for the best there um but uh, yes, yes, we do have uh, Josh's uh, Josh Ramsey, who's here, is going to be uh, helping. He's going to be uh, helping in the form of, uh, of of bait. He has a, a level ten hobbit that he's going to run along in front of my chicken to draw out any of the any of the enemies that would want to attack me, and they'll attack him instead because he's far more tasty. Anyway, uh, it, it'll be I, like I say. It's the kind of thing. It's hard to explain if you don't play Rot- Lotro, but it's. Uh, um, uh, it's it's uh, it, it'll be it'll be a fun time and a, a sort of a fun community project uh, for our Mythgard uh, kinship there uh, on Lotro. But anyway, um, but you are all invited. You don't have to play the game. I'll be streaming it on the internet, so you'll be you you'll be able to catch some pieces of the of the chicken run if you would like to see exactly what this crazy thing is about. Anyway, okay, back to the sketch of the mythology. Okay, so remember briefly what the sketch is, right? The sketch is a plot summary that Tolkien drew up explicitly to give context for an external reader who is going to read the lay of the children, the, the iterative lay of the children of Hurin, right? Um, so that the sketch is in itself, as I was saying last time, not a literary text, right? It's not designed to be a work of literature, just a plot summary, right? A sketch, something like an outline. Um, and I find this... To be something, I mean, this is priceless. Actually, you know, in some ways, you could say, like, oh, you know, the sketches, the sketch of the mythology, you know, the nineteen twenty six sketch. It's not much, right? I mean, it's just, you know, a few paragraphs, kind of giving the, you know, and, and there's so much that it leaves out, probably, and, um, you know, and it's not all that much, you know, it's it's not all that good to read, you know, because it's uh, it's 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 kind of brief and kind of blunt, yeah, but. It's priceless, right? I mean, let's look at the bright side here. On the one hand... if it were a literary text, Tolkien probably wouldn't have finished it, right? So, I mean, you know, Tolkien never finished uh, the, that that kind of thing. He'd have gotten carried away. So the fact that he was just writing uh, a, a sort of an overview survey helped him to, uh, to to get through it, right? So that that's a good thing. But more than that, there's some enormous benefits that we can see in this. Of course, you know, you can see, you know, obviously one interesting benefit, is sort of seeing how the stories are developing in his mind. I mean, it's been a while now, you know, 1926, it's now been a while, almost 10 years, since he shelved the Lost Tales, the Book of Lost Tales. He's been working on stuff, right? He's been doing the, you know, the epic poetry, in particular the way, the the Lay of the Children of Hurin. But, um, and he's about to start the Lay of Láthian, but um, but still it 's been a while, right, so we can see the progression of his overall thought and, and the shape of the stories and the mythology and of course that 's what Christopher Tolkien emphasizes most uh in his uh commentaries on uh you know the the nineteen sections of the sketch that he breaks it down into but i think but it, for my money that 's not even the coolest thing about the sketch. The coolest things about the sketch are just. If you see what I mean, the mere fact that Tolkien is summarizing—that is to say, um, the, the the fact that the project that Tolkien has set for himself is—I'm just going to go through and I'm going to jot down the important elements. You know, this—I'm going to boil the whole mythology down to, you know, its most essential points and just, just lay those out. Right? Oh my gosh that means he's doing that work for us, right? That is what we're seeing here. Like I was emphasizing last time, you know, Christopher Tolkien keeps emphasizing just because something is left out doesn't mean that, you know, Tolkien has definitely chosen to omit it, right? That he's changed his mind about including it. Of course, true enough. But what I was emphasizing was, what we can know is that the stuff that's there is important, right? Not only is it present still, but it was important enough to be included in this overview, right? Um, So... Uh, that's really cool. You know, so so just, you know, having him, even even knowing, even granting that there's probably a lot of other detail um, to those stories. Obviously, there's more detail to those stories, but, you know, so there's, there's going to be some stuff that he's leaving out entirely, and yet, wow, let's pay attention to the stuff that he actually hits on, the stuff that he actually emphasizes, because we rarely get that kind of opportunity for him to go through and say, here's what's important, here's what's important, here's what's important, and but also, even, even sort of more than that, um, there's a way in which I feel, and it's not that, I mean, if the sketch of the mythology were all that we had of the Silmarillion, you know, if it were like the de facto final product, it'd be a little bit disappointing, you know, because it's not a literary text, it doesn't have, uh, you know, the sort of the beauty that we see in the published Silmarillion. But what we do have Uh, In the sketch is the overall shape of the stories in his mind. And those of you who have, you know, been with us through the uh, our our, our examinations, you know, our readings of the first three volumes of the History of Middle-earth series will remember how frustrating it kind of gets at the end of the Book of Lost Tales volume two. Right. That is when we get to the part where they peter out. Um, especially with the Arendel stuff and the faring forth and then the shift to Alfwina. And you guys will remember all these little fragmentary texts that Christopher Tolkien is bringing in, and he's pretty sure that these are from that period, and this is probably the order they should go in, but here's five different versions of these fragmentary stories, and we don't really... It's hard to get the narrative, right? Christopher Tolkien does a great job of piecing it together and giving his best guesses that what the shape of the narrative were, or what the shapes of these different narratives that Tolkien is projecting at different times are, but it's all really confusing, and it's really hard to come out of it with a story. But by golly, the sketch of the mythology, the 1926 sketch, has a shape, right? It's a story. And we get to Airendel, and it's like, wow, an Airendel story, right? Not four fragmentary versions of things which may or may not go together, but an actual story. Um, And we can see within you know how it fits in with the whole rest of the story wow how about that right so uh, you know for these reasons i really love the sketch and i find it really fascinating and important to look at in addition of course we also get um we also get some interesting little nuggets uh kind of uh, uh kind of dropped here and there um, uh so let's um Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, Nick is pointing out the final fate of Turin during the Great Rack. Yeah, and I agree, Nick. The Great Rack. Isn't that an awesome name? I mean, just the use of the word Rack, W-R-A-C-K, in that way is just... I say in that way, as if you tend to use the word Rack. W R A C K in any other way, but anyway, uh, I, I I too love that phrase. Anyhow, um, so l- let's let's then proceed. You know, look at the 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 snippets I wanted to look at a, of the end of the sketch. Um, you know, with sort of this kind of framework in mind here. Um, you're right, Denise Kelly. We do still say r- sometimes one still might talk about rack and ruin. Um, yeah, you can see that, that that's still the same word, right? It's still, like, in the language, but it's rarely... Even that phrase is rarely used. Um, and, uh, and I think, actually, Denise, it's because... I'm not sure I've ever seen the word rack used without the word ruin, right? It's always one of those... It's like spick and span, right? I mean, it's, it, it, you know... It's fine to say, like, oh, that, you know, it looks spick and span, right? But would you ever say, like, wow, it really looks span in here? No, not spick so much, but span, absolutely. I mean, there's some words that you just, they're in pairs, right? And you never think of it. It's weird to think of it on its own. Rack uh, was sort of one of those for me. Um, yeah, a nook and a cranny, Corita, exactly, right? You can have a breakfast nook, right? But uh, you don't get crannies so very often. Anyway, sorry, okay. Moving on. (laughs) Back to Baron and Luthien. This is one of the things... I mean, of course, we could talk more about the Baron and Luthien story, but we talked about that a good bit last time, Um, I think. Unless I've gone crazy, I'm pretty sure I talked about the Baron and Luthien story quite a bit last time. One uh, confession I have to make. (laughs) Between, like, so reading the sketch and reading the Quenta and remembering the lost tales, and I'm rereading the published Silmarillion right now for pleasure anyway, because I always read the Silmarillion in January, and thinking about the film project. I have like six versions of the Silmarillion stories going around in my head at the same time, and I talk about various one of them to various groups of people at different times. So I apologize if I forget where I am or who I've said what to, or what story I'm talking about. Um... If you find this kind of hard to keep track of all these things, don't worry. It's hard for me, too. Um, Anyway, okay. Um, Okay, all right. Sorry, uh, Baron, Luthien, Fading of the Elves. Here we go, okay. When Mandos let Baron return with Luthien, it was only at the price that Luthien should become as short-lived as Baron the mortal. Luthian now fades, even as the elves in later days faded, as men grew strong and took the goodness of earth, for the elves needed the light of the trees. At last she vanished, and Beren was lost, looking in vain for her, and his son Dior ruled after him. Okay. Um, we talked about the Baron and Luthien story. What... Happens at the end of the Baron and Luthian story, that is, the mortality of Luthien. One thing, and Christopher Tolkien emphasizes this, which is why I don't want to spend all that much time on it, because Christopher Tolkien explains it, I think, quite well. Um, Whatever is exactly happening here, we can certainly see that the story is not presented anything near, anything close to as simply. As it will eventually become the final sort of simplicity and and elegance um, of the end of the Baron and Luthien story, namely that Luthien becomes mortal and is sort of accounted among the humans right that she's she sort of is is moved over from the immortal elves into the mortal humans you know she chooses to join herself to her husband uh, you know that that's the condition of her coming back and everything you know so of um, uh, his coming back so that 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 idea is really nice. What's going on here is much more complicated. Um, at, l- at the very least, it's much more complicated than that. Um, but uh, but the one brief nugget that I wanted to extract from this, like I said, it's one of the other things that is, to me, of great interest in the sketch, is we get these sort of nuggets of lore that kind of pop out, right, where we can see uh, not about the overall shape of the story, though we see that too, but um, to see sort of where Tolkien's thought on particular ideas related to his mythology stand. In this case, the fading of the elves. You notice that? even So Luthien now fades even as the elves in later days faded, as men grew strong and took the goodness of earth, for the elves needed the light of the trees. That's like Three eye-openers in one sentence, as far as I'm concerned, right? First, Luthien now fades even as the elves in later days faded. Wow, really? So that's what happened to Luthien? So Luthien's fading, the, 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 the thing that happens to Luthien when she gets the Silmaril, and as a consequence of her transaction with Mandos, um, what happens with Luthien is even as the fading of the elves in later days, so, when we talk about the fading or the dwindling of the elves, uh, you know, that Tolkien initially conceived that as being like the fading of Luthien here. So, that's, again, so it's, in other words, it's not just a... That means, again, so, notice that what I'm drawing a conclusion here about, or rather what I'm interested in, is not what this says about Luthien, but about what this says about the later elves, right? Um the fading of the elves as time goes by is not a question of just like slow gradual like i shall diminish you know and go into the west that's not that's not how he's conceiving this right it's a kind it's like a kind of death it's like becoming mortal, right? That Luthian should become as short lived as Baron the Mortal. It's like that, right? Even as the elves in later days, as men grew strong and took the goodness of earth, it's like a kind of death, right? Not a slow change that happens to them over time, worked on in some sense by the air of Middle Earth or whatever, but rather, um it's like it's like mortality that comes upon them. That's a wholly new context. Anyway, new for me. Um to think about the fading of the elves um, in the later times. In fact, not only does is, do I find this eye-opening sort of at this point, it makes me want to go back and look at the Book of Lost Tales again and be like, whoa, is that the way he was thinking about it before? I mean, because, you know, he talks about the fading, and the elves shall fade, right? And of course, we're used to this fading business with elves, but it's a lot more graceful by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, it seems, right? It's like, oh, you know, it's kind of sad. It's a little, it's, it's a little bit melancholy, right? But it's not like death. Or something, um, uh, but here it's it's. You know, so was that the way that he was thinking of it all along? I think that that's. Um, I think that that's really. I think that that's really interesting. I, I, it's so. That's eye opener number one. Eye opener number two is this direct competition between men and elves. Now we have seen something like this uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, as Christopher points out. But um, but just that you know, taking the goodness of earth, right? Um, that it's a, as a consequence, not just of the presence of men. Like as men grew more numerous, the elves diminished. I uh, remember there was even like a mathematical business in the Book of Lost Tales. Like elves could not thrive in a place where there were as many like more men as you know when the, as, when the total number of men exceeds the total number of elves. It was it was, it was, it was a pretty uh, pretty definite sort of you know ratio uh, that had to be maintained in order for the elves to thrive. But here, this sense of active competition. Men are growing strong, and they're taking the goodness of the earth. They're in direct competition. The elves are fading, which is like a kind of mortality, because of the men. And then the third eye-opener, needing the light of the trees. Really? <laughs> like, In what sense? That's, as Christopher points out in the commentary, that's completely new. He's never said that before, right? What did he mean? And again, remember, this is a summary. Like, it's just like, I'm just going to give some background information for him to understand this, and he throws out this little gem. For the elves needed the light of the trees. Really? So, outside of Valinor, they, they were languishing. I mean, and, and like, post-Ungoliant. They're all doomed. Um, it's, um... It's interesting. I mean, I'm not not quite sure what to make of that, even, really. Um, But it obviously suggests a kind of intrinsic connection between the elves and Valinor. It makes me want to wonder, like, what about pre-Valinor? What about, if they hadn't come over, did the elves who never came over, have they been suffering this whole time because they never got to see the trees? What's up with that? I don't even really know. But but anyway, it's all pretty cool. Um, Okay. So... Like I said, you know, it's another thing I like about the the sketch, and we'll see a couple of things like this in the Quinta as well. Um, uh, But... um uh, but I love these little kind of nuggets that sort of pop up, and and you just sort of find this thing that sort of shows, or at least gives some kind of tantalizing sense of where Tolkien was on this concept. In this case, the fading of elves uh, at this point. Um, Tom, yeah, it does say somewhere that the elves began to fade with the rising of the sun and the awakening of men. In the published Silmarillion, it says something like that. That um, you know, the, the the that the years of the sun. Uh, are sort of swifter than the slow years of uh, uh, in in Valinor, and that all in Middle Earth uh, begins to, like basically sort of like mortality increases, the pressure of mortality increases, and the elves diminish and decline. But see, that's that kind of graceful fading, right? Yes, they will fade, um, but um, anyway, yeah yeah and josh absolutely it certainly makes the silmarils far more important absolutely yeah what what are they now like elvish life support right in middle earth i mean wow um but uh anyway good good uh but i'm not i'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm moving on because like efficiency that's my middle name um that's what the e stands for uh just kidding but anyway okay uh Olmo's message to Turgon. Here's another one of those moments where we get the story. Now, this is a story like we've seen before, uh, but again, really interesting to see where Tolkien's mind is here with the story of Gondolin. And as we begin, this is the first one of the passages I want to look at as we begin to try to sort of figure out the end game of the first stage of Middle-earth and where the Silmarillion ends up here in the sketch. Tuor lingers long in the sweet land Nantathrin, the Valley of Willows, but there Ilmir comes him, there Ilmir himself comes up the river to visit him and tells him of his mission. Uh, that is, Tuor's mission, not Ilmir's, presumably. He is to bid Turgon prepare for battle against Morgoth, for Ilmir will turn the hearts of the Valar to forgive the gnomes and send them succor. If Turgon will do this, the battle will be terrible. But the race of orcs will perish, and will not in after ages trouble elves and men. Okay, so first of all, hang on a second here. So, okay, so Plan A, right? Olmo's pl- or Ilmir's, Plan A. Um, this is what t- two hours to tell. Okay, Turgon, he's supposed to prepare for war. Meanwhile, so he's gonna and he's gonna set out and attack Morgoth. Meanwhile, Olmo is basically, you know, so he's 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 telling me he's like, I promise. Um, I'm going to turn the hearts of the Valar to forgive the gnomes and send them succor, right? So this is going to be coordinated like we're, you know, like, uh, uh, it's it's like Olmo is going to take down the shield generator uh, around the Death Star while while Turgon goes out, right? That's kind of the plan here, right? So Ilmir is going to go back and he's going to turn the hearts of the Valar, right? But... This is insane. But, but meanwhile, <laughs> so, so Turgon, don't wait for it, right? Don't wait for a word that the Valar are with you. Just go, right? Go into battle. Trust me, I'm going to be right there behind you with all the rest of the Valar. They're going to forgive the gnomes. It's going to be awesome. They're going to send you, sucker. Uh, so don't worry about it. And if you do, it's going to be a bad battle. I admit it. But the race of orcs will perish and will not after in After Ages trouble elves and men. So there's going to be a lot of suffering in the short term, but it's going to end the conflict, right? It's going to be over. Or, plan B. If not, the people of Gondolin are to prepare for flight to Sirion's mouth, where Ilmir will aid them to build a fleet and guide them back to Valinor. Really? So, remember, they've been sending people and it's not been working, but that's okay. Olmo says... I'll make a fleet and I'm going to draw you remember how the elves are drawn over in the first place right on an island right and then they're drawn with boats you know the 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 still called Solusimpi, I think in the sketch um, anyway are are brought over afterwards and pulled in the boats by the swans right so okay um and so Ilmir he's going he's going to make a fleet and he's going to bring the people of Gondolin over to Valinor and presumably get them entrance, presumably not not going to leave them all a shipwreck in the Magic Isles. At least, I I hope that's not Ilmir's plan. Um, uh, uh, Okay, right, so that's plan B, right? Plan B is the fleet. If Turgon does Ilmir's will, so plan A, Tuor is to abide a while in Gondolin, and then go back to Hithlum with a force of gnomes, and draw men once more into alliance with the elves, for without men the elves shall not prevail against the orcs and the balrogs. So he's, we, we get a pretty good view of plan A here, right? Plan A. Turgen sets off with the Gondolindrum. Hooray! We're going to attack Morgoth. Meanwhile, Tuor... You go with some of the gnomes, right? Some of the some of the Gondolindrum, presumably. And you go over to Hithlam and set all the humans free. Remember, all the men are being penned up in Hithlam, and have been for a long time. So he's going to go and he's going to rally all the men. And so all the men are going to come. So we've got the Gondolindrum coming in and attacking Melko, and then the men are going to come in, and then Omo says, ta-da, the cavalry is going to arrive, and from Valinor are going to come to Valar. And like, I forgive you, we're coming to smite Melkor on your behalf, and it's going to be great, right? That's... That's plan A. Plan B is I'll take you all away in a fleet. <laughs> Josh, this is this is a question truly to be asked. Um, Josh Ramsey says if he could turn the hearts of the Valar, why didn't he do it before? Josh, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, okay, so like Ilmir, why are you gonna wait? And I mean it's if it's just in your power. Uh, to, uh, to and now, I mean, the only way, Josh, that it makes any sense at all to me is if basically the whole premise of Ilmir's appeal to the rest of the Valar is going to be like, look at my man Turgon here, right? There he is. They're putting their necks out right now. Uh, we got you know, so he can't. He he he's not going to be able to gain their sympathy and stir them to action unless Turgon is like in the field, right? And uh, and Tuor is rallying the men, right? If this is all like in the middle of things, then uh, then it's totally going to work. And yeah, Josh, I agree. If this sounds like the near Arnoid he had to you, it kind of does to me too. Except. It's like the battle of unlimited joy instead of the battle of unnumbered tears. That's it would totally okay. Well, not unlimited joy. It's going to be bad, but again, long term, it's going to be good. It's going to totally be worth it. Um. So, yeah, that's um, that's that's plan A, <laughs> uh, but plan B is the fleet. So this is this is this is. Kind of remarkable. Remember, compare this to the published Silmarillion. Remember, almost message almost sends a message in the published Silmarillion, right? Remember, almost message in the pub- in the published Silmarillion. His message is, um, run away, right? Leave Gondolin now. Uh, it's just like basically a message of doom. Gondolin is doomed. It is going to be destroyed very soon. If you don't leave, you will die. This is your last chance for any of you to escape, right? Uh, and Turgon's like, hmm, uh, nah, right, forget about it. Um, Turgon, you have to admit, is put into a, uh, a, a tighter spot in this first one, right? That is to say, what Omo is asking of him is much bigger. He has to make, and we talked about this, when we talked about the Lost Tales, because that, that element of the message was similar. He has to make a big leap of faith. And uh, for those of you who weren't here, I'll repeat this because uh, I, it meant so much to me when I first figured it out, finally. Um, if you remember that bit in the published Silmarillion, when it talks about Turgon and why Morgoth is obsessed with Turgon, right, when Turgon is, you know, so Morgoth is almost won. only Gondolin is left, but he's just like, I must destroy Turgon. And, uh, and you know, it, it's kind of like, dude, what's, like, why are you so obsessed with Turgon? Like, yeah, okay, like, you haven't gotten 100% of the elves, but, like, you pretty much won. Uh, what's the problem? And the problem is not that he's so obsessed. The problem is the fact that the narrative explains it. But the explanation Um didn't seem to explain, uh, as somebody else said. Um, That is, it flashes back to say, even while in Valinor, when Turgon walked by, Morgoth felt a chill in his heart, knowing, you know, sort of sensing that through Turgon, his doom would come upon him, right? And I always found that a really tantalizing line in the published Silmarillion. And in the context of the published Silmarillion, the only conclusion that you can really come to is that he's talking about Eärendil, right? Since Eärendil is Turgon's grandson, and Eärendil's the guy who's going to go back and tell the Valar, and that's going to lead the Valar to come back, and they're going to overthrow Morgoth. Therefore, through Turgon, his doom will come. And it's like well, that's kind of indirect. I mean, yeah, doom kind of comes, and Turgon is kind of indirectly involved, but, uh, you know, that's not exactly like Turgon shall be your doom, precisely, right? So that always kind of bothered me. Like, again, I loved that line, but it just, the actual fulfillment of it seemed kind of weak. But then once I finally read The History of Middle-Earth and I saw these texts that we're looking at both now and in the previous classes... I, saw, I realized, okay, of course, that's a holdover, right? That business about, like, Turgon shall be his doom comes from back in the day here where Turgon was going to be his doom, right? Turgon was going to be the general who leads the army, who comes out and attacks and destroys him. Um, so, yes, Turgon is directly going to be the one who will, uh, who will bring about his downfall. So, that always was a little bit satisfying. But, all right, so we see... Um, Uh, sort of where things are headed, but of course it doesn't pan out, right? We've got almost plan A and almost plan B and Turgon chooses C, none of the above, right? I'm actually, I'm fine I'm just going to hang out in Gondolin and then almost everybody's going to be destroyed and Arendel uh, you know escapes of course uh, with uh, tour and well <laughs> arendo escapes with tour arenddel's a little kid right but he you know he brought his dad with him so that was fine um, and his mom and uh, and they end up down of course in the mouths of Syrian so we end up with our refugee situation uh, again as in the published Silmarillion, as we were sort of rather expecting then we get to the point finally of the adventures of Arendel. all right. This, of course, like I mentioned before, this is this was like the most frustrating bit uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. And now, here it is, right? We get Eärendil's adventures in a linear narrative. This is so awesome. Tuor, growing old, cannot forbear the call of the sea, and builds Arame and sails west with Idril, and is heard of no more. Eärendil weds Elwing... Remember all that stuff before about, like, in the B-text, Eärendil uh, builds a second boat in which to go and search for his father, but it's not the same boat as the other. Remember all that stuff? Oh, so glad to be done with that. All right, I won't even refer to it anymore. Tuor builds Eorame and sails west with Idro and is heard of no more. That's lovely. Eärendil weds Elwing. The call of the sea is born also in him. <laughs> I didn't think about this before, but it almost suggests he was like, as soon as mom and dad leave, he marries Elwing. Like, did they not approve of her or something, right? Was this like, they have to wait till he's out of the picture? Anyway, anyway, okay, sorry. Um, the call of the sea is born also in him. He builds Wingelot and wishes to sail in search of his father. Ilmir bids him to sail to Valinor. Here follow the marvelous advent- Now, now, I defy you. I defy you to tell me. What's Almo's plan now? That shrewd strategist Almo, what's he up to here? Okay, Hilmir bids him to sail to Valinor. Here follow the marvelous adventures of Wingalot in the Seas and Isles, and of how Aerendal slew Ungoliant in the south. He returned home and found the waters of Syrian desolate. The sons of Feanor, learning of the dwelling of Elwing and the Nauglifring, had come down on the people of Gondolin. In a battle, all the sons of Feanor, save Maedros, were slain. But the last folk of Gondolin destroyed or forced to go away and join the people of Maedros. Elwing cast the Nauglifring into the sea and leapt after it, but was changed into a white seabird by Ilmir and flew to seek Eärendil, seeking about all the shores of the world. Okay. Um... All right. Um, Yeah, Adam Page says, Here, follow the marvelous adventures. Reminds me of Aragorn's history. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, Yeah, now, by the way, remember, Maglord does come back. Right, that it's almost right away. Like in, in a penciled note on this passage, uh, you know, Tolkien's like uh, Midoos and Maglor. Right, so Maglor does still live. Uh, uh, he changes his mind about having it be only Midoos almost immediately. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. One thing to notice, if you remember any of those, uh, or not, not just the fragments, but the projections of the story of Earendo, Um You may remember that there was going to be, like, seven whole separate, like, days worth of stories about Eärentil. That uh, had he actually written what he seemed to be projecting at the time, the Book of Lost Tales was going to be, like, the... You know everything from the music of the Ainur through the fall of Gondolin, i.e., the prelude to Arondel, and then the many adventures of Arondel, which was going to be practically as long as the entire uh, as the entire uh, st- you know Book of Lost Tales up to that point. And you may also remember when we looked at the uh, the fall of Gondolin story in the Book of Lost Tales, which, as you recall, was is, was probably the first of the stories that he wrote um And remember we were looking at those passages when it talks about Eärendil and Eärendil's coming and the sort of flagrantly messianic error of those passages, right? And then came the child, the one who was to come. I mean, like it made such i mean, like the trumpets blowing at the birth of Eärendil made it sound like this is the turning point of all of Middle-earth, right? I mean, this is like, again, everything, all of world history was a preamble to the birth of Eärendil and its actual career seemed a little disappointing after that huge buildup. But again, that was in a sense justified by the fact that he was going to be basically the protagonist of the history, right? I mean, he, he was going to get as much screen time as everybody else put together um, had already had already gotten. So one thing that we can see in the sketch, that's gone, right? Um, yes, of course, this is only a summary, but I. it seems to me I cannot imagine that Uh, the writing out of this, that that this summary, that that one sentence, here follow the marvelous adventures of Wingalot in the seas and isles, and of how Arundel slew Ungoliant in the south, that that one sentence is Tolkien's summary for you know, like another whole, like seven enormous stories worth, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, it seems to me, it sounds to me, based on this summary, that Tolkien has already shrunk that that a. Arendel is now taking his place within the mythology, rather than being, you know, sort of the crown jewel, you know, the crown prince of the mythology uh, here. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, so Adam, uh, has a good question, um, did he posit these numerous and background uh, and varied background stories before? Not because he ever intended to write them, but solely to give an air of an expansive mythology. Well, I mean, in the context, it's not like he was doing it publicly or anything. I mean, it it wasn't, um, uh, like, that is, he he wasn't trying, because you're right that he certainly does say things like this to kind of give the perception of depth, right? Oh, and there are countless stories out there, but I don't have time to tell you all of them. That kind of thing is exactly a kind of thing that he would do, and it's awesome when he does that kind of thing. But that's not the context of those other passages in the book of Lost Tales. I mean, it's just like notes to himself about what he plans to write. So I, I, I think he, it seems from the Lost Tales that he actually really did mean to do that, um, um, but he never got to. Adam, here, that sentence here sounds exactly like what you're suggesting. That now the the, the epic of A. Arendo which he seemed like he, he was thinking about writing. Um, now he... I, I don't believe he does anymore intend to write the epic of Eärendil. And instead, all of that stuff is compressed to a single sentence which gives the perception of depth. And Eärendil had lots and lots of adventures and he only mentions the one and the most important one that he kills on Goliath in the South. And that's been an adventure of Eärendil's uh, pretty much all the way along. Um, but, uh, okay. Um, so yeah, and you know, one is even tempted to wonder... Was the epic of arenddel that concept of like the and and that's my phrase by the way tolkien didn't say that so don't call it that officially i'm just that's just me being a little bit flippant but um you know the 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 huge uh, you know sort of anthology of arenddels stories that he seemed to at least want to write or thought he should write or whatever um this uh um perhaps was weighing on him somewhat, and he never got around to it. And you know, the more I think about it, the more this seems to me like a perfectly Tolkienian kind of thing. Like, this sounds like Tolkien over and over. Um, this sounds so much like Tolkien that I could totally... I have no idea if this is what happened, but I would absolutely... I could absolutely very easily believe that this is what happened. Remember that his mythology <laughs> begins with A. Arendel, right? Um, the name of A. Arendel, and he starts writing poems about A. Arendel, the wandering star... Um, I can totally imagine that he begins... He writes the Book of Lost Tales. Now, like in Tolkien's mind, when he set out to write the Book of Lost Tales, what he, it was all a preamble to Eärendil, right? He had the Eärendil... He had, you know, had this Eärendil person with the star and everything... But he had to tell stories to contextualize it, right? He couldn't just go and start writing stories about Arendel, right? Because he needed to contextualize it and, and tell the, the whole background leading up to A and then he could finally tell the ARENDO story that he wanted to tell, right? So then as he does this, it kinda grows and grows until it's like the entire you know, Book of Lost Tales. And then when he finally finishes this the preamble and the setup and gets to the story that he really wants to tell, he gets bogged down and can't anymore and doesn't do it. Um, that seems to me. Um, I, I could. I could so believe that that was um, that that was exactly how it happened. I don't know. No idea. Um, but uh, but I could see it happening that way. Anyway. Okay. Um. So, Arendel's story. He uh uh. He, so he has his adventures now. Okay. So let's 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 keep careful track of this. He goes home. He finds everybody's gone. Most of them dead, right? The disaster has happened. You know, kinslaying number three has happened. Elwing is gone, not dead. Notice she's cast out the Silmaril. Her Silmaril is lost. The Silmaril attached to the Nauglifring is at the bottom of the sea somewhere. Hey, wait! Doesn't that mean Olmo has it? Yeah. Well, he's not giving it up. So it's gone. So is Elwing. Apparently, though she's changed into a white seabird by Ilmir, this is presumably to spare her life, and yet he doesn't hang... he doesn't, you know, like, hang on to her or anything. She's off wandering, finding him, and he comes back to find her gone. That already seems... um, that seems kind of tragic. Meanwhile... Of course, we have to pause for a moment in looking at A. Arendel's story uh, to note the momentous event which just happened right here in the middle of the sketch or near the end of the the sketch of the mythology. Elrond is born! Elrond the half-elfin! Uh... Uh, he's still half elfin, sadly. But this is indeed the orig- the birth moment of the Elrond character. Um, so that's kind of exciting. Their son Elrond, who is half mortal and half elfin, a child, was saved, however, by Midros. When later the elves return to the west, bound by his mortal half, he elects to stay on earth. Bound by his mortal half, he elects to stay on earth. Um... And that's very interesting. The word bound there. Like, if he elects, then in what sense is he bound? That is, is it... Does his mortal half-like call to him? And because he's like in touch with his mortal side he chooses to stay on earth rather than going to elven home that's the best way i can understand it though that combination of bound and elects in the same sentence i find kind of interesting through him the blood of hurin his great uncle and of the elves is yet among men and is seen yet in valor and in beauty and in poetry um okay okay good um So again, this is this is the origin of uh, of of Elrond. Um, I have to say, this is one thing that I found I found a little puzzling. I um, I'm always very reluctant to say that it seems like Christopher Tolkien is wrong about anything because he knows these texts so much better uh, than I do, than anybody does, and even than his father did. Because of course, his father didn't look through them all as much as he did. Um, so you know, I hate to... But uh, Christopher Tolkien emphasizes in his uh, commentary that he thinks it's very significant that we see Elrond... At the moment when Elrond is introduced, the idea of him being given a choice about his fate is also, you know, right there with him. That that element of the choice of the half-elven seems to be... Or half-elfin, sorry, in this case, uh, seems to be sort of, uh, you know, connected to the story from the beginning. But... uh, I would say, like, sort of. I mean, he's not. He's choosing his fate in the sense of he's choosing whether to go or to come back, but not his fate in terms of whether he's going to be an elf or a man. Um, that doesn't seem to be exactly. The, I, I mean, at least I don't see it. Um, he elects to stay on the earth. Does that mean that he's choosing his mortal half in the sense of becoming mortal? Uh, maybe, but it's not real clear to me, so I'm a little, I, I, I'm a little skeptical, I guess, of that. Um, but, uh, um, anyway, um, no Elros, no Elros, Cheryl, he, 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 he's, he is not yet. Um, which, Cheryl, might be sort of less shocking than you think, or rather, thinking about this a different way, um, Elros, of course, is the first king. Of, will become the first king of Numenor. Um, Elros's absence here suggests an answer to a kind of chicken and egg question that you might ask about Elros. That is, Elrond has a twin brother, Elros, who chose to become mortal and become the first king of the Numenorians. So, which comes first, Elrond or Numenor? That is to say, is this a story? Did do we have any sense? does the story of this noble line of kings with Elrond's twin brother as their form, as their first king uh, is that does that, you know, so does Elros come first and kind of beget that idea or is Elros created in order to provide a king for this, and it seems that the latter is the case, right? Elros isn't there at the beginning. Uh, we will see Numenor come into being much more on that, um, there's much more on that in volume 5, of course, than in volume 4, but, uh um so, so we will see Numenor come about and they will need a king but um uh but it's um it's not uh it, it certainly doesn't come about as a way to dispose of Elrond's twin because Elrond does not have a twin so Elrond is the child the one vessel through which the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the blood of Hurin and of the elves and of, uh, and of, the, uh, of the divine race, you know, of Melian as well, uh, comes among men. Um, also, I can't help but remember that line in The Hobbit describing Elrond. It says that there were, in those days, there were still, um, there were still those who had the blood, both of elves and of heroes of old, in their veins, and of these, Elrond was their chief. Elrond being the chief of them still doesn't make any sense, because he's like the chief of himself, right? I mean, he's a one-man gang as far as he's the only one who has the blood of the heroes of old and of elms in his veins. Um, so he's got nobody to be chief of. Uh, which is why I still... That, that, more than anything, is why the Hobbit Elrond just doesn't seem quite right to be exactly this Elrond. Um, that's a story for another time. Point is, that phrasing... Uh, in The Hobbit, um, especially uh, the uh, heroes of old, right? The heroes of the men of old. Um, Hurin, of course. Of course it's Hurin. Hurin is the uber-hero of humankind, uh, and so, of course, we single him out uh, 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 particularly. Um, Well, yes, Yana, his kids would have that blood too, but, like... To say, I mean, if you're talking about his family, you'd say he was the father of them, or you'd talk about his family. You wouldn't be like that, you know, that he's the chief. It makes it sound like he's got a clan of people of his kind, right? Um, I, you know, not just that, like, he's got a couple kids and they do too. Um, but anyway, okay, sorry, okay. All right, back to Arundel, though. However, we've interrupted this story to talk about Elrond. Now back to Arundel. So, okay, he came home. His wife is gone. He's looking for his way. He's now desolate, No Silmaro, his wife is a seabird looking around for him. He comes, so he sets off for Valinor. Remember, Olmo said, hey, you should go to Valinor, right? He comes to the Magic Isles and to the Lonely Isle and at last to the Bay of Fairy. Eärendil, mightiest mariner of song, has made it through the Magic Isles and he's back to Valinor. All right, he climbs the Hill of Kor and walks in the deserted ways of Toon and his raiment becomes encrusted with the dust of diamonds and jewels. He dares not go farther into Valinor. So he goes, he gets to Valinor, the the first person of any kind to return alive to Valinor, uh, with the possible exception of Luthien if she went, like, across the grinding ice or something and went to the halls of Mandos, but never mind. Point is, he, climactically, the mightiest mariner, gets there, and what happens? Um. Nothing. Nothing at all. It's um. It's empty. Now, you remember it's empty. There's that anticlimactic moment in the published Silmarillion too, right? He comes to Tyrion upon tuna, a uh, tuna. Sorry, he comes to Tyrion. I'm sorry, I, I, I've been listening to the Silmarillion, so I have like Martin Shaw in the brain. Anyway, he comes to Tyrion upon tuna, and he and he. Uh, And it's empty, right? But remember, in the published Silmarillion, it's only temporarily empty. They're just out, right? You know, they're just like, they hung up the gone fishing sign, but they're still there. They're just at the festival, right? Presumably, if he had any sleuthing skills, he could see that they were intending to come back, right? But no, no, no. Remember, Toon is now like empty. Nobody lives there anymore. They're all gone. All of them are gone. Every singular one because remember not only most of them left, uh and so too already the not yet Vanyar now still Oh shoot, Kendi still I think in the sketch. Again I'm all messed up with my nomenclature. The Kendi those who will be eventually the Vanyar have already left, right? And, uh, and, and just, the, just the, the, the Noldoli are left, but then most of them leave with Fanor, and, 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 and a few of them come back, but then all of them leave when they go to fight the war against Morgoth. So they're gone, and he comes back and finds the place deserted, and he wanders around the empty city and goes away, apparently having spoken to no one and done nothing and accomplished nothing. He builds a tower on an isle in the northern seas. Now, again, so wait, what was Omo's plan? Almost said go to Valinor. Why? <laughs> what was he supposed to do in Valinor? And okay, he builds a tower on an isle in the northern seas to which all the seabirds of the, world's, of the world repair. Oh, that's convenient. His wife is a seabird. So maybe she'll come. We're set up for a happy ending. He sails by the aid of their wings, even over the airs in search of Elwing. Okay, so he flies. We're used to ARendo flying. But he's flying, he's being towed by birds, right? Which, I don't know uh, if you, uh, if your childhood was anything like mine, this makes you try not to think about James and the Giant Peach. But it's like that, right? So he's being, he's being towed by birds, and, um, uh, uh, in some sense, I guess, by the aid of their wings, that's how I understand it anyway, even over the airs in search of Elwing, but is scorched by the sun and hunted from the sky by the moon, and for a long while he wanders the sky as a fugitive star, so Ayrenddel is just a tragic hero, then I guess he came back and he found his wife or didn't find it you know he was looking for his wife, didn't find his wife. Said, "Okay, I'll go on this desperate quest." Valinor succeeded and yet accomplished nothing. Finding it deserted, built an island, made an acquaintance with a lot of seabirds who you think might have heard something about his wife, but no, no, they help him to look, but he doesn't seem to look. And not only does he not, or he does seem to look. Not only does he seem to find her, not only does he not seem to find her, but he gets scorched by the sun and hunted by the moon, and is wandering around the sky as a fugitive star. Karita asks, "Why is the moon hunting him?" What an excellent question! Uh, it seems to be hunting him because that's what it does. The moon is just a hunter. I mean, the guy who drives the moon used to hang out with Orame. He likes hunting, right? <laughs> he doesn't need an excuse. Um, yeah, and Kate Neville, you're right. There is a little of Icarus in there. It seems, I and mean, of course, it's not this. You know, the moral of the story certainly doesn't seem to be the same. But yeah, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, kind of remembers. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so... Um, it's... Yeah, Gwendolyn says, why is it that Aemrendil is not punished by the Valar since he doesn't have the Silmaril? Gwendolyn, it's not even obvious that the Valar even <laughs> knew he was there. Right? It's, like, worse than that. Uh, you know, I can't, It's like... How anticlimactic is, is Arendel's trip to to Valinor in this sense. But now keep in mind, again, those of you who did The Lost Tales with me will remember that, that happened. You know, him going there and just giving up and wandering away. That was in the fragmentary bits that we saw. Um this is not a this is not a this is not a new thing. Um Arendel's story being a tragic story, and in a couple versions of the earlier fragments and things he was like never going to find elwing right um so the fact that he ends in sadness and wh- why is he in the sky why has a. arendel become a wander a fugitive star well he's become a fugitive because he's being chased by the moon uh and scorched by the sun but he's become a star just to try to find his wife right like get a better better vantage point i suppose for look searching for his wife um and um Anyway, yeah, so um, so this is, this, is, this is our story. And now we come to the last battle. Uh, okay, I'm tempted to call it the last battle. Morgoth is thrust through the door of night into the outer dark beyond the walls of the world, and a guard set forever on that door. The lies that he sowed in the hearts of men and elves do not die, And cannot all be slain by the gods, but live on and bring much evil even to this day. Some say also that secretly Morgoth or his black shadow and spirit, in spite of the Valar, creeps back over the walls of the world in the north and east and visits the world. Others, that this is Thu, the great chief, who escaped the last battle and dwells still in dark places. Ah, right here we see the germ of the Lord of the Rings already, right? The seed, has, the seed of the Lord of the Rings has been planted in that sentence. When the world is much older, and the gods weary, Morgoth will come back through the door, and the last battle of all will be fought. Fionnwe will fight Morgoth on the plain of Valinor, and the spirit of Turin shall be beside him. That's right, the spirit of Turin shall be beside him. It shall be Turin, who with his black sword will slay Morgoth, and thus the children of Horin shall be avenged. Yeah, exactly, Josh. It's the germ of the necromancer. So, if that sentence is the seed from which the Lord of the Rings will grow, the reference to the necromancer uh, and his dark tower in uh, in The Hobbit is like the little green shoot, right, that's coming up out of the soil when you can't really quite tell what kind of plant it's going to be yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so... Yeah, don't... Um, don't, uh, d- d- Josh. Don't ask me to explain where Turin's ghost has been and why it's come back. I don't know. All I can say is he's Hurin's son, man, and Hurin is like the. You know, more than anything else, Josh, the main conclusion I come to here, I'm trying not to think of the metaphysics of this. Because the metaphysics, Tolkien makes no gesture at explaining the metaphysics of what on earth is going on with uh, the spirit of Turin here. Okay, so if he's not going to make a gesture, I'm not going to make a gesture at it. I don't know. But um, but sort of thematically, anyway, uh, this makes a certain amount of sense. Um, the story of the Children of Huron one of the ways in which I have kind of understood that story for a long time has been as essentially um uh, essentially the the quintessential human story. Uh, it's one of the only stories. I mean, yes, there is an elf in it. I mean, there are elves who are involved in that story, but that story is is more. Focused upon humans and the destiny of humans uh, than any other story in the Silmarillion. I mean, like, you know, Baron and Luthien is about mortality, too. Mortality creeps up in a bunch of places. But the, the story of the Children of Hurin seems to me the one which is primarily involved, you know, primarily focused upon the, the, the situation of humans in the world. It's a little depressing of course it's not quite the most cheerful way of thinking about uh, the uh, the role of human life in the world you know the sort of the state of, of humanity on on earth but the, nevertheless that seems to me sort of what that story kind of does so the way in, in this sense thinking about thinking about this josh not an ace not not asking myself the metaphysical question about the destiny of turin's own personal soul but rather thinking about this in a sort of a quasi symbolic sense that it is in a sense symbolically anyway fitting that turin should be the one who comes back and slays morgoth that evil is going to be destroyed okay so think big picture here for a second evil is eventually going to be destroyed And it shall be a man, a human being, who destroys him. Um, And not only, and not just any man, but Turin, the one who is sort of like the symbol for humanity... Persecuted and screwed over by evil, right? He's the one who, having messed up everything, and also of like ineptitude and arrogance, right? He, having messed up everything and have had everything gone against him, um, having had having been born under a doom which he could not escape, uh, and which you know really gave him a pretty bad situation in his life. Nevertheless, he's the one who's going to come back and it is his hand that is going to destroy morgoth there's a kind of symbolic beauty in that particular choice talking about sort of like the redemption of humanity and the way in which uh sort of doomed humanity will itself become the instrument that is used for the ultimate destruction of um of morgoth that's kind of nice actually um Uh, that he uh, um, yeah, Adam says uh, Turin is the archetype of sinful man needing redemption. In a sense, yeah, but I would also add, Adam, there is that redemptive element, uh, uh, certainly, but it's not just redemption. It's also the fact that he himself will strike the blow, right? He's not only um, the lost who is to be redeemed, he is also uh, the instrument that is going to be used yeah. Yeah. So um anyway, I um, I think that there's um it's again, if you don't if you don't fret about the details, it's kind of it's kind of nice. It's kind of lovely. But here's where my head starts to hurt. Okay, so this is the last battle of all. So this is the total end of the world. This is apocalypse we're talking about here. Right? Um, at least that's what I'm understanding. So, okay. Keep that in mind. Moving on. Almost done. Almost done with the with last week. Okay. In those days, back to Eärendil. In those days, the Silmarils shall be remo- recovered from sea and earth and air, and Maedros shall break them, and Belaurin uh, that is Pelurian, that is Yavanna. Uh, with their fire, rekindle the two trees, and the great light shall come forth again, and the mountains of Valinor shall be leveled, so that it goes out over the world. Uh, that is, so that the light goes out over the world. Presumably not the mountains, nor Valinor, the antecedent of it. A little bit unclear there. And gods and elves and men shall grow young again, and all their dead awake. of Men and elves, presumably, not the gods. Remember, he crossed his men out there uh, in pencil uh, uh, in a a revision. And thus it was that the last... That is, the gods and the elves shall grow young again, and all their dead awake again. Presumably of the elves, not the gods, as few of them have died. And thus it was that the last Silmaril came into the air. The last Silmaril. So remember, Christopher Tolkien went over this very carefully, but let's recap. Silmaril number one is lost... By, that is Baron and Luthien, Silmaril, chucked into the ocean by Elwing. Gone, right? Bottom of the ocean, sort of, eventually. Shallowly. But anyway, whatever. It's in the ocean, right? Leaving two Silmarils on the Iron Crown of Morgoth, those are taken from the Iron Crown by Fionwe, when Morgoth is overthrown, not overthrown and stabbed by Turin. That's at the final battle at the end of the world, but rather at the battle in the War of Wrath. Fionwe overthrows uh, uh, Morgoth, and he's shoved headfirst into the, through into Outer Darkness and his iron crown is taken, uh, beaten into a collar for his neck, and the Silmarils recovered. Those are the two Silmarils, right? So we got the one in the ocean, two in the hands of Theonwe. Maglor steals one of them, right? And Maglor gets burned by it, and chucks it into the uh, uh, fiery hole in the earth. So one is in the fire, one is in the ocean, one is still in the possession of Fionnwe, right? The Valar still have the one. That's the one that they give to Eärendil, right? So they say, hey, what's let Eärendil have this last one? So that's ha- so it's not the, the Silmaril of Baron and Luthien that Eärendil has on his brow in this version of the story. And thus it was, that the last Silmaril came into the air. The gods adjudged the last Silmaril to Earendel, until many things shall come to pass. Okay. Uh, So, that's a little vague, to say the least, but it suggests there's lots more story to come. Nothing's going to tell it, right? But this is not an end-of-the-world thing. Right? Um, so this is clear, clearly, there's, there, there's a lot of times... So when we talk about the last battle in the end. This is not the end, right? This is after the War of Wrath, but there's still a lot of world to go on. Many things are going to come to pass, and he's got the Silmaril anyway. Because of the deeds of the Sons of Phanor... Okay, it's because of their deeds, they give the Silmaril... They, 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 they take them away from the Sons of Phanor, who can't have nice things, and they give it to Airend- to Eärendil. Midros is sent to Eärendil and with the aid of the Silmaril, Elwing is found and restored. Nice to see Midros contributing constructively. Eärendil... So, and, and, and no, let me not pass over. Happy ending! Right? Eärendil finds Elwing! That's lovely! Okay, so he was... It was it was looking bad, right? Like she was flying in the form of a seabird, and she was looking for him, and he was looking for her, and, and they were not finding each other. But they are going to be reunited. How lovely! Okay, okay. Um, wait, where are we? We were... Uh, 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 yeah, Arendel's boat is drawn over Valinor to the outer seas and Arundel launches it into the outer darkness high above sun and moon. That's a happy ending too, right? No more being plagued by the sun and hunted by the moon. Fantastic. There he sails with the Silmaril upon his brow and Elwing at his side, the brightest of all stars. It makes it sound like Elwing is the brightest of all stars, which is cute. Keeping watch upon Morgoth. So he shall sail until he sees the last battle gathering upon the plains of Valinor. Then he will descend. Okay, so he's up there in the sky now until the end of the world, apocalypse, last battle, right? So, Turin's spirit comes back from wherever it's been and fights Morgoth, and Eärendil descends. Then he will descend. That's a, that's that that that, that that's kind of lovely, right? Okay. <laughs> Roy is wondering if he has a, 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 a front row seat to, uh, to uh, the last battle, right? When Turin returns and stabs Morgoth, uh, uh, Aranda wants to see that, that thing up close. Okay. Um, right. All right. So last point, and then we'll move on from the sketch. Um, the very end of the sketch is fascinating, and I didn't necessarily see it coming. Okay, okay. I didn't at all see it coming. And doubly, do I not see it coming. And this is the last end of the tales of the days before the days in the northern regions of the western world. Uh, Wait, okay. This is the last end of the tales of the days before days in the... So, like, does that mean this is all ancient history? So... But some of it hasn't happened yet. Is some of it prophecy? This is one of the things when I talk about the last battles. One of the things that's a little bit unclear. Again, if you remember the Lost Tales, you'll remember that the sto- the frame story, gets caught up in the narrative itself, like the Faring Forth and the the stuff with elves and men in Britain and all that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, the end, of, you know, the final end of the whole trajectory of the mythology. Was not apocalypse. Was not the end of the world. It was the end of those days which led up to the current status quo of, you know, the domination, you know, the dominion of men, um, in which we are currently living. If I understand the sketch properly, in that when it says the last battle, it really means the last battle, and we're talking about the end of the entire world, the apocalypse. In other words, that stuff is a prophecy of the future. Then. Um I assume that then would be accepted. It it's not it, it doesn't make it clear. Um the sketch it's not obvious that like and it is said that someday that is in the future tense from when you reader are reading this, right? But again, part of that is remember this is not a literary text, it's just a summary. So maybe if we were getting this in a more literary fashion, we would perceive that distinction more clearly. Hey, let's pay attention to that when we get there in the Quinto. Moving on. Okay. Uh, these tales are some of those remembered and sung by the fading elves, and most by the vanished elves of the Lonely Isle. They have been told by elves to men of the race of Aarendo, and most to Ariel, who alone of mortals of later days, sailed to the Lonely Isle, and yet came back to Luthien, that is, England, and remembered things he had heard in Cortirion, the town of the elves, in Tol Arisaia. Um. Okay. Okay. So the two things. First, the frame story still exists. The frame story of the Lost Tales is that you have this human guy, Ariel, who goes to the Lonely Isle, meets the elves, hears the stories, brings them back to the world, and thus are these stories, um, you know, begun to circulate within our world, right? Um, The surprise, that's not a surprise, that was the premise, that was the frame of the Book of Lost Tales. The surprise is that it's still there, Right, we had no whiff of it before and with this kind of outline, the fact that he would end the outline by saying, Oh, P. S the frame story still in force, still doing that. That's kind of interesting. It wouldn't necessarily have expected that in this context. Interesting to see he hasn't let that go. Also interesting to see we're back to Ariel, who was the original name of the guy, and then there was all the change to Alf Winna, and then everything kinda of hit the fan, but um Ariel is uh is back. Right, so that's um that's interesting. Um, but anyway, okay. Thus do we end with the sketch. Now, it's time to start class. Let's talk about the Quinta. All right. Here's the first thing I want... The first point I want to make about the Quinta, I want to make in a simple way. I'm not going to spend a long time talking about this passage. What I do want to do is, is read the passage and tell me what you notice. So evil came, so came evil into Valinor. Silpion was waning fast, and Laurelin but just begun to glow. When protected by fate, Morgoth and Ungoliant crept unawares into the plain. With his black sword, Morgoth stabbed each tree to its very core, and as their juices spouted forth, Ungoliant sucked them up, and poison from her foul lips went into their tissues and withered them, leaf and branch and root. Slowly they succumbed, and their light grew dim, while Ungoliant belched forth black clouds and vapours as she drank their radiance. To monstrous form she swelled. Then fell wonder and dismay on all in Valmar, when twilight and mounting gloom came on the land. Black vapours floated about the ways of the city. Varda looked down from Tenequitil, and saw the trees and towers all hidden as in a mist. Too late they ran from hill and gate. The trees died and shone no more, while wailing throngs stood round them and called on Manway to come down. Out upon the plain the horses of Orame thundered with a hundred hoofs, and fire started in the gloom about their feet. Swifter than they ran Tulkas on before, and the light of the anger of his eyes was as a beacon, but they found not what they sought." Wherever Morgoth went a darkness and confusion was around him that Ungoliant made, so that feet were bewildered and search was blind Wow The point I want to make is in a sense not really a very sublime one. Um what I'm doing is not what I want to do with this passage is not close reading exactly, but well close listening. You hear the difference? Between the quinta and the sketch? Right? Just just listening to this passage. Hear the difference between the Quint- the sketch and the quinta? Yeah, Cheryl, exactly. This is no longer a sketch. This is literary. Yeah. Um what has happened and keep in mind I don't know why Tolkien is doing this. Um that is to say, and Christopher doesn't explain it. It's not obvious that Christopher knows. Um, Christopher doesn't even ask the question in his, summer, in his commentaries anyway. We think about all the other stuff that we've read in these first four volumes of the History of Middle-earth so far. And some of them are rather peculiar, but it's at least easy to see what Tolkien is kind of generally doing, right? That is, Book of Lost Tales, right? He's writing a, a, a cycle of tales, right? Bound together in a frame. Um, and the tales themselves work really well as sort of related tales, which are not, um, you know, they're not a summary, but they're, of course, they're not novel length and detail and, 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 and in their narrative style. They're in the style of a kind of a, 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 an oral performance and a fairly um, uh, sort of refined oral performance at that with, uh, with very complex syntax and everything. Um, so, okay, so it's it clear what he's setting out to do from a literary standpoint, right? Why he's writing that book. Then after that, he starts writing epic poems, right? I'm going to do an alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. I'm going to do a, 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 an epic heroic couplets version of the, of the lay of Lathian. Cool, right? All right, I get it, right? Uh, epic poem version of these stories, that sounds awesome. Right? Okay, I want to explain the context. So I'm going to write a sketch right I'm going, to, I'm going to write a plot summary of the whole thing in order to give uh, this guy the backstory for the Witter to lay of children horn. I, I totally understand that, right. I get wh- I, I get what he's doing and why he's doing it. Why does he write the Quinta? I mean if you think about it for a second, it's a little odd, don't you think? I've written this plot summary, right? The sketch. What, what's your next move? Right? You've written the sketch of the mythology. What are you going to do now? Uh, a couple plans suggest themselves. Right? Uh, plan A. I'm going to go back and revise the Book of Lost Tales. Right? Now, having thought it through again, some changes I want to make. I'm Tolkien, so I'm probably going to start all over again at the beginning. Right? But but I'm going to go back and, and, and do... Because remember you just said, at the end of the sketch, that was still the plan. Right? Frame story and everything. So... Having the next step when he decides, I want to put a little bit more into this. I want to flesh out my mythology more again, right? Again, now it's been a long time. It's been like fifteen years since he started the Book of Lost Tales. Now we're in nineteen thirty, so so again, to say I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna reboot the Book of Lost Tales seems to be a perfectly logical thing for him to do. It's not what he does, right? He's been writing epic poems now for ten years. the Witter of Leia, the Children of Hurin, the Way of Lathian. Of course, you will remember those. Fra- remember the fragments from the other poems that he began. Sometimes substantial fragments. You know, uh, dozens in some cases, hundreds of lines in other cases. Um, of uh, you know things like the 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 flight of the Noldoli and and uh, um, you know so the t- t- others. I'm blanking on the others right now, but anyway, there there are a bunch, right? We can see that impulse. So okay, so okay. One thing you could do is reboot the Book of Lost Tales. He could write an, an epic poem or a series of, ep- of of epic poems, right? Why not? That would make sense, right? But no, no, that's not what he does either. Instead, what he does is he says, "I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna do another summary, except this time I'm gonna do a pretty summary, right? I'm just gonna flesh out the summary as is in that same kind of I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is i'm gonna I'm gonna invest in the plot summary genre. Right? And I'm going to transform this plot summary into a gorgeous plot summary and flesh it out a little bit. Is it just me? Or does that seem weird? <laughs> it seems a little strange to do? Um, I think it's a little strange, anyway. A little unexpected, in any case. Um, certainly a, a departure for Tolkien. But in a way, of course... I mean, for our purposes, thinking about... The published Silmarillion that uh, I assume we all know, and I assume most of us love, um, it's a fateful choice, right? Because it's clear that the published Silmarillion is the sort of the linear descendant, not of the Book of Lost Tales, but of the sketch of the mythology and the Quenta, right? Um, I mean, of course, obviously, the Book of Lo- it's based on stuff from the Book of Lost Tales, Lost Tales, but it is a linear descendant of the sketch that. It's uh, it's the final flowering of the mythological plot summary genre, right? Um, and uh, and yet no, Roy. Of course, you're right that there are a lot of myths that read like that. Well, sort of right, but at least there are collections of myths that read like that. But but that's not even what the myths were originally. That is to say, like yeah, you can find stuff like that, like. Um, Apollodorus's uh, collection of Greek mythology, for instance. Um, I used to uh, teach Apollodorus's anthology, um, Greek anthology, and uh, you know, yeah, like it's it's it reads like that, but it's artificial. That is, it's not the real myth. It's like a dude just giving summaries of the myths. Um the real stories are like Homer, right? like but either Homer telling the story of Achilles or Homer telling the story of Odysseus, or Homer digressing in the midst of telling the story of Achilles to tell the story of you know of uh, of or, or, or him the uh, Uh, digressing from the story of Odysseus to tell the story of the time that uh, Hephaestus caught uh, 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 Aphrodite and Ares in a net, right? Um, That's the way that myths tend to get told. Um, So for him to sort of say, yeah, I'm going to just do that kind of a summary it's, it's, it's And so, I mean, Roy, you're right that it's not, it's, it's not totally unprecedented. That kind of thing is not totally unprecedented. But it's an interesting, it's a weird direction. It's an unprecedented direction uh, in Tolkien's own experience. So, I mean, you know... Anyway, I just, it, I, I just think it's really... I, I think it's a fascinating departure for Tolkien's career, is the main point that I uh, make there. But, anyway, yes... This is beautiful. I, by, by the way, I think this is way better than the description of the darkening of Valinor in the published Silmarillion. Um, I love this version of the darkening of Valinor. I shamelessly included this slide just because I wanted to read it. Because um, I think, do you hear it though? Hear how he's taken what was bare plot summary and he has given it an almost poetic rhythm, a quite poetic rhythm in places. I mean, listen to, um, uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Too late they ran from hill and gate. That could be the line of a song, right? You can hear as he's writing that, like, he's, 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 he's almost slipped into verse. Too late they ran from hill and gate. Um, too late they ran from hill and gate. Uh, it's a, it's perfect iambic, uh, tetrameter. His favorite, uh, meter. Um, uh. Anyway, I just, and you think about the the, the balance, uh, the gorgeous balance of some of these sentences. Um, with his black sword, Morgoth stabbed each tree to its very core, and as their juices sprouted forth, Ungoliant sucked them up, and poison from her foul lips went into their tissues, and withered them, leaf and branch and root. I mean, it's so good. Oh, man. Um, so um so yeah, yeah. Um Yes, good, Josh, you're right with the alliteration. Yeah, we get we get we can see him playing again, not that he's writing alliterative verse, but Josh is pointing out the line. Um, out upon the plain the horses of Orame thundered with a hundred hooves, and fire started in the gloom about their feet. Um yeah, it's not like he's writing alliterative verse, but absolutely, horses, hundred hooves, fire feet. Right? We can hear that that uh, that that oral effect, right, of the alliteration kind of rumbling around in there. It's really cool. Um, yeah, their feet were bewildered. Feet were bewildered, and search was blind. Uh, notice the balanced phrases uh, emphasized by the alliteration on the bees there. Yeah, I mean, this is this is Tolkien writing prose in really high, in, in in what i think of as tolkien's highest style not his most complex diction um but in, in this sense in that sense it's in a lower register than the book of lost tales which was uh sort of more archaic in its structure and in its word choice um but at the but with, with the poetic mellifluence of these of this prose this is Tolkien, I think, at his at his greatest, um, and you you can hear that the delicacy of his ear uh, in 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 sort of weighing the sounds and exploiting the sounds of words and the rhythm of his syntax and everything so good. Um, anyway, that to me is the main is, is this is the difference between the sketch and the quinta right we, you know, we can talk about and we will talk about some of the details of the you know ways the story is developing and evolving but that to me pales in comparison to the fact that he's now taking that really simple summary and he's doing it but he's doing this with it um, and can i just say i called his uh undertaking the undertaking of the Quenta here to be a really unusual, really strange one, but can I just say how grateful I am that he did? I mean, if he had done either one of those two things, other two things that seemed so much more likely, right? That is the tale, the book of lost tales reboot, or the epic poem version, right, or series of epic poem versions. The odds that he would have followed through either one of those projects to their end are. Like zero, he never would have finished. There's no way he would have finished it. He never finished anything like that. Um, but this, you know, so it's like I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is, was actually in his mind or what. But it's like he's found a genre in which he can complete a work to its end right? The plot summary genre is the genre for him when it comes to that. And now he's making it his own, right? Now he's making the plot summary genre into, uh, you know, re- a real literary vehicle for him. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's really cool. Um, oh, Adam is asking, how would I compare it to his translation of Beowulf? Um, well, it's hard there... I would be very cautious comparing it uh, d- sort of detail by detail, mostly because in his translation of Beowulf, he has the sound of Beowulf specifically in his head, and what he's always trying to do, whenever Tolkien does a modern English translation of a Middle English or, or Old English uh, text, he is trying to convey the feel of the original language, the feel of the original text and 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 poetry. Um, So he's in that sense kind of not really doing his own thing. Like Adam, for instance, we wouldn't see him break out into spontaneous iambic tetrameter in the middle of it that same way because that's not the sound of Beowulf. He would avoid that kind of sound. So it's not that he's doing the same thing but it's similar in the sense of his paying attention to the sound of sentences. Remember all the jokes that I was making when we—I was reading those passages from the sketch about like uncertainties in his pronoun antecedents and stuff. That's a product of him just kind of rattling off prose to summarize the stories, right? His language is not really precise, even syntactically, even you know grammatically, not really precise in places. Um, because that's again, that's not what he's doing. He's just trying to—he's just trying to give the overview that. Of course, has comp- has uh, has quite shifted around here, um, but uh, anyway, okay, all right. I-, I will. However, I know several of y- a whole bunch of you were pointing out um, and were really. Um, uh, Oh, sorry, of course, Tom, sorry, I missed it before. Tom Hillman, of course, exactly caught Too Late They Ran from Hill and Gate as Iambic Trameter. I knew you'd, you'd recognize that, Tom. Tom uh, Hillman, one of the uh, veterans of my Tolkien's poetry class uh, from last fall, which was so much fun. Um, yeah, I, I I knew you'd catch that, Tom. Anyway, okay. So, uh, uh, but as I, oh yes, a point that here I, I I will comment on the one point the uh, which I too agree with you found most eye opening in this particular passage, um, which is when protected by fate, Morgoth and Ungoliant crept unawares into the plain. Um, yes, it is the fate of the trees of Valinor to be destroyed this day. In the published Silmarillion, it is a stratagem right Morgoth knows full well because he lived in Valinor for a long time after uh, his unchaining he knows full well that today is the day of the great feast of celebration that everybody's going to be focused over there today is the optimal day to sneak into Valmar and take out the trees that's the story in the published Silmarillion that is not the story here in the Quenta in the Quenta they they're just they're just rolling the dice Morgoth and Ungoliant trying to sneak in They're taking the risk, and it it pans out for them. Why? They're protected by fate. This was apparently supposed to go down this way. Now, we are told afterwards that there is a festival going on, but here I I certainly agree with Christopher Tolkien that it still sounds like a bit of an afterthought. It's never brought up. It's certainly never brought up in the context of Morgoth's own uh, uh, thought process that this is why he's doing it throughout the whole description of the darkening until he begins talking about what happens after the darkening, uh, it's not. It's not until then that he even brings up uh, the fact that there's a, that there's a, a, a festival going on. Um, okay, um, let's go back a bit. Back to the having done the darkening, let's now go back to the the arising of the trees. Remember, we looked at the passage in the sketch that described the trees, and I was really struck as I was explaining last time about how. Um, how detailed the description was, and how the description was rooted—for give the pun—in recognizable trees. Right? It was like a. It was like a. You know, the uh, laurelin was like a laburnum, and 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 silpion was like a, a cherry. Um, and you know, I, and I, I found it interesting that although you know, certainly they were of mythic significance. Um, the way that they were described there, it went out of its way not to emphasize that they are sort of mythic things first but like that they were trees first and Christopher also makes a big deal with with which I again completely agree with him um, in the fact that it's a big deal M- makes a big deal of the use of the word planted in the sketch um, that that seems an odd and a significant word um, and uh, he makes a big deal that it's there in the sketch and that it's gone here in the Quenta, and again I think he's quite right to uh, to point that out anyway In Valinor, Yavanna hallowed the mould with mighty song, and Nienna watered it with tears. The gods were gathered in silence upon their thrones of counsel in the ring of doom, nigh unto the golden gates of Valmar the Blessed, and Yovanna Pelurian sang before them, and they watched. From the earth came forth two slender shoots, and silence was over all the world, save for the slow chanting of Pelurian. Under her songs two fair trees uprose and grew. Of all things which the gods made most renown have they, and about their fate all the tales of the world are woven. Dark green leaves had the one, that beneath were as silver shining, and he bore white blossoms like the cherry, from which a dew of silver light was ever falling. And earth was dappled with the dark and dancing shadows of his leaves, amid the pools of gleaming radiance. Leaves of young green like the new open beech the other bore, their edges were of glittering gold, Yellow flowers swung upon her boughs like the hanging blossoms of the merry trees men now call golden rain, and from those flowers there came forth warmth and a great light. Okay. Um, what do you notice here? In many ways, of course, the details are the same. Right? Easy to put the sketch version next to the Quenta version and say... Yep, same story, same trees, right? Same general descriptions, right? Cherry, what's golden rain now, right? Uh, but the description of the leaf, the you know the fact that laurelins leaves are like a beech leaf, right? It's all, it's all the same. Good, Carita points out uh, the trees are written of as male and female. Yeah, yeah, they are much more heavily personified here. Absolutely, um, and yeah, more more poetry, Josh. I agree, dappled with the dark and dancing shadows. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. And the golden rain is still laburnum. Though notice it, it's it's using the, the sort of the more poetic uh, version of the name for the laburnum now, right? Less less mundane. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it sounds less like. So, have you ever seen a laburnum tree? Yeah, kind of look like that, right? It's, it's 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 the sketch kind of gave that impression. That's not at all the impression that we get here. Um, in fact, if anything, it seems to kind of ripple down the other way, right? Um, why do men call this particular kind of tree the Laburnum Golden Rain? Uh, how You know, is it you know in some sense because it's like uh, Lauerland? Again, he doesn't suggest it, but but it seems to almost work that way. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, and you're right, Kate. The uh, the gender does correlate with the eventual sun and moon. Uh, that is true. Um, so okay, so they're more personified. Just how notice how the two things sort of happen in correlation with the tonal shift between the sketch and the quinta. That is, as the language and the diction and the descriptions become more beautiful, more poetic. So. The elements within the story also become m- more mythic, become deeper e- even again, these are no longer saplings that are being planted, right uh, by Pelurian or uh, 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 Belaurian, but rather um, they're shoots that spring forth and then almost immediately become personified, right um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, good. Mick Neal says, it all reminds me of why I loved the Silmarillion in the first place, the the, the, the mythic denseness. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, good. So I, I, I think that, the, you know, th- that too, again, shows a, gives a really good glimpse of kind of not just where we are, but where Tolkien is moving us, right? What he's doing now. Um, what is the process, right? From, get, going from the sketch to the Quenta, it seems pretty clear the kind of direction that he's that he's going and oh, what a fascinating observation roy roy says this is tolkien's recovery in action yeah yeah um you're right uh roy this is no longer like it kind of looked like a laburnum right but rather uh you will never be able to look at, at a laburnum tree in the same way ever again right you will never you will you will never uh, you will look at cherry blossoms uh, with new eyes this coming spring, right? Yes, it is Tolkien's recovery in action. Uh, what a what a marvelous observation. Um, okay, another passage. Uh, this is an, uh, another passage I want to just touch on briefly. Um, this is another one of those nuggets of lore passage passages where he, he makes reference to something, which I think is uh, uh, is is really interesting in uh, in 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 passing. Morgoth's hordes. In such forests did Oromë sometimes hunt, but save Oromë and Yavanna, the Valar went not out of Valinor. While in the north, Morgoth built his strength, and gathered his demon broods about him, whom the whom the gnomes knew after as the Balrogs with whips of flame. The hordes of the orcs he made of stone, but their hearts of hatred. Glamhoth, the people of hate, the gnomes have called them, goblins that may they be called. But in ancient days they were strong and cruel and fell. Thus he held sway. So, yes, as I've explained very many times since about 2007, goblins and orcs are, in fact, exactly the same thing. It's synonyms. Goblins, may they be called, right? They, they, they are called that. But in those days, they weren't just goblins. They weren't just like the kinds of things that you might meet in, oh, George MacDonald. No, no, no. They were uh, strong and cruel and fell. But Arthur, you have hit exactly upon, and Josh as well, upon, and Gwendolyn, all three of you, upon um, the lore nugget that I wanted to touch on. The hordes of the orcs he made of stone, but their hearts of hatred. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, so, yes, uh, you may remember in the published Silmarillion we are told that uh, Morgoth cannot make new living things. He can only corrupt that which is already made. Not true. We saw in the Book of Lost Tales that this was not true. We saw him make dragons and make orcs out of rock and slime. Um, he's still in the business. 1930 Quenta Morgoth is still in the business of making orcs, and they are still being made out of stone. But again, that poetic touch. their hearts of hatred. Presumably, by the way, this still means that Morgoth's own spirit of hatred and malice, that he is investing his own spirit of hatred and malice in the orcs. Um, but it's it's much nicer to say that he he makes their hearts out of hatred, and I love. But I've always loved the word Glamhoth. Uh, what a what an awesome name that is! The Glamhoth, the people of hate, the horde of hate, um, the gang of hate. Anyway, uh, really uh, really cool. Um, uh, Anyway, okay, so so yeah, so so A, this is where orcs come from, they're made out of rocks and hatred, they're not yet corrupted elves, we're still nowhere near that origin story for the orcs, but larger, bigger metaphysical point, Morgoth can make stuff, and he manufactures, the the orcs are a product of Morgoth's R&D department, not corrupted elves, um... And, uh, and Nancy what's orme hunting he's hunting uh evil beasts that are roaming around in middle earth uh morgoth's uh morgoth's creatures yeah tom doesn't doesn't it sound like trolls it kind of sounds like tolkien never does completely release this idea he just uh uh he just shifts it um yeah yeah uh, he just doesn't make it true of the orcs anymore um arthur yeah arthur asks uh Somewhat uh, sharply, uh, is that why it's okay to commit genocide against the orcs? Um, yeah, yeah, they're made out of rocks. Exactly, they're not children of Iluvatar. Um, it's not a question of like, do they have free will? They're not even really living creatures. Um, they are, in this sense, below beasts. They're animated stone. They're they're rocks animated by hatred. And malice. That's all. So yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, g- kill them wherever you find them. Put them out of commission, right? Because they're just they're 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 stone. Originally stone creature. Does that mean that orcs have like stony? You know that like they, they still are are sort of uh, perceptibly made out of stone. No, not necessarily. But that's what they're sort of originally shaped from and adapted from. Um, so um, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, but but yeah, but that that does seem to explain the sort of cavalier attitude towards uh, slaughter all the orcs. Um, yeah, Arthur, you're right. Ilmir promised that they would all be uh, would all be exterminated. So uh, yeah, uh, Michael asks, aren't the dwarves also made from earth? Uh, remember in Appendix A, Part 3, the, bis- the, the House of Durin, you know, Durin's Folk portion of Appendix A, when it talks about the origin of dwarves, and it says, of the origins of dwarves, many many strange tales are told, right? But it's not really known where exactly they came from. You know why it's not known? Where they came from. Because <laughs> Tolkien never wrote it! Uh, um... He he never you know he never wrote the origin story of dwarves. So he does what he always does in that kind of case. He's always like, uh yes, uh oh uh, uh, among the Elven scholars there is much uncertainty and they don't know for sure what the true story may be. He didn't tell it. He doesn't know. He didn't say it. Um uh keep an eye on dwarves because dwarves uh you know, as as we see, dwarves are um not really good guys yet and, and I wonder even I don't even really think they're fully good guys in the Lord of the Rings I know that sounds shocking Thorin's family are uh, uh, well they're decent enough folk if you don't expect too much but, uh, but they're, they're an aberration It's all dwarves aren't like that uh, anyway anyway, uh, but the point is dwarves certainly in this in 1930 the dwarves are not uh, are not nice people yet um, which is why Thorin and his friends are were kind of uncertain about them. And why Bilbo feels like a bit of an idiot when Smaug tells him, you got to watch out for those dwarves, and he's like, oh man, I really should have known. Uh, it's one of the reasons why he's quick to believe, or at least uh, partially believe, or worry about what Smaug tells him. Um, anyway, um, uh, there's... As I say, the origin story... Of, but, but keep in mind, we don't have... Notice we have no Aule and yvana yet, right? There's no story of Aule making the dwarves. That's not there at all yet. Um, no whiff of it in any version that we've gotten to so far. Um, yes, Gwendolyn, the dwarves are still very Norse. Um, absolutely. If you're familiar with dwarves in, North, in Norse mythology, that seems to be... I mean... We, I feel safe in saying that until he tells us otherwise, we're kind of safe in presuming that they're pretty much like Norse dwarves. Everything I see in the early Silmarillion suggests that that's the case. So if you're familiar with those, that'll kind of help at this point. All right, we're moving right along. We're so getting through everything. All right. The nature of the elves and what's going on with them. All right, let's, let's, let, let's watch this carefully here. To the other elves, the Valar gave a home and dwelling. Uh, so we're talking about the, uh, um, the people who will later be called the Vanyar and the gnomes, right? Because even among the tree-lit gardens of the gods, they longed at Wiles to see the stars. A gap was made in the encircling mountains, and there in a deep valley that ran down to the sea the green hill of Cor was raised. From the west the trees shone upon it, to the east it looked out to the Bay of Fairy and the Lonely Isle and the Shadowy Seas. Thus some of the blessed light of Valinor came into the lands without, and fell upon the Lonely Isle, and its western shore grew green and fair. There bloomed the first flowers that ever were east of the Mountains of the Gods." On the top of Kor, the city of the elves was built, the white walls and towers and terraces of Thun. The highest of those towers was the Tower of Ing, whose silver lamp shone far out into the mists of the sea, but few are the ships of mortals that have ever seen its marvelous beam. There dwelt the elves and gnomes. Elves equals Vanyar, gnomes equals Noldor. So, okay. Um... There are a lot of details in this bit that I find really fascinating. And the kind of question that I'm bringing to it here is uh, what is the nature of elves? No. No, that's not really the question. The real question is to what extent are the Valar screwing up here? That's my real question. It's plain that they are screwing up in bringing the elves to Valinor. The question is, to what extent are the, are the Valar screwing up in what they're doing here? And I think we get several pieces of information relevant to that question in this passage. So they've brought the elves to Valinor, right? They say to the, go to the elves, and they're like, hey... We think you guys are the greatest. You want to come live with us in like eternal bliss? We have this awesome pad that we've made over here, right? It's great. We think you'll really like it. Come back and live with us where everything is gorgeous and that we have the light of the trees. You're going to love the trees, by the way. And um, it's, um, in fact, maybe you'll become dependent upon the trees and wither away and fade and die uh, if you get separated from them. But, uh, you know, let's hope for the best. Anyway, so you should come over, right? Because it's going to be awesome and you'll love it. That's the, the the idea, right? But what do we see? They go over to the awesome place, right? And they're they are enclosed roundabout with awesomeness. They are surrounded by perfect bliss. And they're like... It'd be kind of nice to be able to see the stars, actually, right? They, they, they need access to Middle-earth, right? For them to be completely walled away from Middle-earth seems to be wrong seems to be bad even when they're there they long to see the stars at least at wiles right every once in a while they long for that right so the valar are like hey let's make a gap fine all right we love you so much we're going to we're going to we're we're we're, we're going to leave the door open right and let you guys step outside to you know take a breath of fresh air every now and again i mean of less fresh air or something but anyway you know we'll let you go out every now and again um And, of course, in saying that, it shows how the light of the trees is being hoarded by the Valar, right? Through the gap, the light comes out, right? Um, and flowers bloom, like, accidentally on the Lonely Isle. And they're the first flowers that ever were east of the Mountains of the Gods. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's kind of nice. You get to share a little bit, even if it wasn't the plan, right? But even then with the tower, right? Ingwe. Ing, uh, who is Ingwe, right? He crosses it out and writes Ingwe all over the place. Ingwe doesn't just live in the city built on the margin, right? So they decide they're not going to live in the middle of Valinor. No, they're going to live on the hill in the valley out facing, you know, with the access. To the stars, and to the middle, or the place that they left behind, in order to come to the super awesome place, right? So they li- they're g- they're going to live on the boundary. They can go to the super awesome place, or they can look out into the stars. And the fact that Ing, the high king of all of the elves, no, king of the elves, and also king of the elves, <laughs> never mind. Anyway, point is, he makes a tower which has a light. Which sh- why does he make a lighthouse? Few are the ships of mortals that have ever seen its marvelous beam, right? So it's not like an actually very useful lighthouse, but it's a really interesting symbol. Why does he he make a tower that shines a light out into the sea? We don't know why he does, but he did it for some reason or other, right? That is to say, the elves seem to have this Middle-earth words impulse, right? They want to be able to see out in that direction to see the stars of Middle-earth. They want to... They're even shining this light out towards Middle-earth, kind of like the Valar aren't with their w- trees behind the walls there in Valinor. And I find this this whole thing kind of um, paints a really interesting picture of uh, um, of the sort of the natural impulse of the elves and how it seems to be going against it. It's sort of a gentle... We don't get a sense of, uh, you know, disharmony or, you know, things going awry here, but yet it does really seem things aren't panning out the way that the Valar had envisioned, right? Um, Things don't actually end up being as perfectly blissful, as contentedly blissful as the sales pitch for Valinor um, actually made it sound. Yeah, Cheryl, I know it's super confusing about the elves and gnomes thing, Elves equals Vanyar. Well, elves equal Kendi, equal Lindar, equal Vanyar. The third uh, uh, group of elves, which are in the Silmarillion called the Vanyar, are here called the Kendi, which is just... And then he changes it to Lindar, but um, sometimes they're just called the elves. Because that's not confusing or anything. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James says he figured the lighthouse aspect was for the ships of the Tillary. Maybe, maybe it's a cooperative effort. Uh, maybe it has to do with them. I don't know. I mean, I kind of think that the reference to the ships of mortals, fewer the ships of mortals that have seen its marvelous beam, kind of points out like this tower might sound like a lighthouse. But it's not, <laughs> at least it's not a lighthouse that mortals uh, have seen or can use. Um, anyway, okay, um, let's. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm moving on because I'm like totally out of time, but moving swiftly. Okay, more on the Quendi Quendi Light Elves, Lindar, Vanyar, folks. Most did Manway and Varda love the Quendi? the Light Elves, and holy and immortal were all their deeds and songs. Don't ask me, I don't know what it means to have holy and immortal deeds and songs. I mean, I guess I, I know what holy deeds and songs are. I think I know what a holy deed or holy song would be like. i not 100% sure that I do, but I think I do. I'm not quite sure what it means to have an immortal deed or an immortal song uh, I mean, if ever we use a phrase like that, we generally mean immortal in the memory of others, but that doesn't seem like, and everything they did, everybody remembered all the time does not seem to be a good s- summary of what's going on there. Um, what it does seem to me to suggest um, is like they become set apart. Holiness always suggests that kind of untouchability, right? separated from, from other things, set apart. Um, the Light Elves become the set-apart people, right? Um, Because of Manwe and Varda's love for them and their love for Manwe and Varda. Um, In the note here, um, uh, Christopher explains that Tolkien had added this bit. But the love of the outer earth and the stars remained in the hearts of the Noldoli, and they abode there ever, uh, that is in in Tune upon Cor, and in the hills and valleys about the city. But the Lindar, that is the Quendi, which is the Elves, which is the Vanyar, but the Lindar after a while grew to love rather the wide plains and the full light of Valinor, and they forsook Toon and came seldom back. Okay, so there is one third of the elves who do become at home in Valinor, right? Who so they, they, they all like move to their like little halfway house there, right, on Toon, right, on the boundary. Um, so they could see outwards towards Middle-earth, and they could go back into, into Valinor if they wanted to. They moved back into Valinor full-time. They forsook Tune and came seldom back, and the Nodoli, the Nodoli became a separate folk, and their king was Finwë. Yet none dwelt in the Tower of Ingwë, nor, <coughs> nor save such as tended that unfailing, nor... Something there's a word missing presumably this manuscript <clears throat> save such as tended that unfailing lamp and Ingwe was held ever as high king of all the Aldali. So, <clears throat> their moving out of tune is not a, a sundering, right? That is to say, it's it's not like a falling out between um, let's call them the Lindar and the Gnomes. Um, it's not um, it's not a demotion. Right, it's not a like, and then they fell away. Right, this is um, this is a promotion. Uh, it sounds like right that the Lindar are ascending to a new level, literally as they're like moving to taniquatil to I almost did the Martin Shaw thing again. Um, they're moving to Taniquitol, the holy mountain, to live and hang out with uh, Manway and Varda full time. So that's nice, um, but. So, okay, so the highest of the elves, the light elves, also called the high elves, um, also called the elves, <laughs> are set apart, right, immortal, holy, living up on the holy mountain with Manway and Varda. Um, so just, that's an interesting point, an interesting moment. Right, An interesting data point in understanding sort of the purpose and destiny of elves. And, as I said, the question of how much did the Valar screw things up. How about the gnomes? The Noldoli, the deep elves, that men call gnomes, were beloved of Aule, and of Mandos the wise. And great was their craft, their magic, and their skill. But ever greater their thirst for knowledge, and their desire to make things wonderful and new. In Valinor of their skill they first made gems, and they made them in countless myriads, and filled all tune with them, and all the halls of the gods were enriched. If you remember the Book of Lost Tales, you may recall that a great deal of time well, a great deal of time, but anyway, a a substantial paragraph was given uh, to the details of of, of this gem making. Um, In the Book of Lost Tales, it was quite clear that gems were not Mined and cut by the by the Noldor or gnomes. They were made by them. They were crafted by them. They they they, they were a product. Um, they invented them, um, and shaped them. And uh, uh, so again, it's not a mining and gem cutting thing. It's a it's a it's a craft. It, it, it's a craft item, and um, that seems to be the case here too. Um, I think, uh, you know, of their skill, they first made gems. That's still what I'm hearing here. They've not yet become miners. They are still making gems, like, from scratch. Um, Okay, okay. Um, So notice what we get here. First of all, notice these are the wise elves. Why are they... How are they wise? Why are they wise? Remember the conversation we had last time about this, right? The Noldor, the Noldoli, excuse me, still not quite yet, the Noldor. The Noldoli, the gnomes, are wise in that sense that we talked about last time. They're wise in the sense of being cunning, being clever, being skilled in craft. Um, In that sense, they are wise. Therefore, the wisdom of the gnomes makes them not less susceptible to temptation but more susceptible to temptation. Just think about, just kind of unpack for a second, their desire to make things wonderful and new, right? Ever greater their thirst for knowledge and their desire to make things wonderful and new. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing evil about desiring to make wonderful and new things. And yet, we can see already how easy it would be for those desires to be twisted, right? Um, For them to get, say, oh, I don't know, wrapped up in the wonderfulness of the things that they make, right? Um, To focus so much on making something new that they are driven to, oh, I don't know, seek dangerous arts from an untrustworthy source, like to choose a random example out of the air, somebody who comes along and says, hi, I'm a strange but friendly guy who can teach you how to make rings of power, which are awesome, right? If you have a thirst for knowledge and desire to make new things, that might sound really, really appealing to you, right? Um, So, uh so, yeah. Now, Adam, you're absolutely right to point out what would seem to be almost an inconsistency in that wise usage. That, uh, that Them beloved, being beloved of Aule makes perfect sense, right? As Aule is clearly very wise in the sense of crafty, cunning, clever. Um, but Mandos, the wisdom of Mandos, we are accustomed to thinking not in that sense. Mandos doesn't make stuff with his hand. He's not he's not he's not a he's not a, a Saruman in that way, again, as we used, as I was talking about the Anglo-Saxon word, um, uh, so yeah, that's interesting. You know, I'm I'm wondering if that's kind of a, if he's kind of punning on that word deliberately there, um, or if you know, in some sense, this is true of Mandos as well. Um, not in the physical sense, as it is with Owley. Is there some sense in which Mandos is A maker of things, not physical things, but you know, but spiritual things. I don't know. I don't. I don't even know because Mandos. I don't. I've never fully gotten Mandos. Um, But um, anyway, throwing out ideas here. But okay, so um, here's the wisdom of the of the elves. But of course, as we see. This we can see immediately how this can go wrong with um, uh, Thainor and Michael. By the way, you are you are right uh, thinking about the um, uh, Michael was saying that he figured that Mandos' doom, uh, you know, his reading of you know, his pronouncing of dooms uh, was related to patterns, i.e., weaving and art. Um, yet you could say perhaps that he's cunning in the sense of his understanding of the music. Right, and that's where he gets his, you know, that is the, the music of the Einor, and that's where he gets his dooms from. And of course, Michael, I can't help but remember, of course, his wife, which doesn't, which doesn't have yet, uh, Vire, the weaver, right? But the idea that eventually he's going to be, Mandos is going to be associated, even sort of at one remove like that, through his spouse, um, with uh, with um, woven webs, right, w- woven tapestries, um, all through his halls. Um, it does suggest that there's the wisdom, the knowledge of Mandos, the knowledge of his dooms, do seem to be derived from his ability to interpret patterns, the patterns of the music, as we see also, you know, we see them sort of embodied in the patterns of Vyres weaving later on. Not in the story yet, but... Anyway, okay. All right. Back to the silver else. Uh, We now return to the Silmarils. In those far days, Feanor began on a time a long and marvelous labor, and all his power and all his subtle magic he called upon, for he purposed to make a thing more fair than any of the Eldar had yet yet had made, that should last beyond the end of all. All right, well, that's uh, shooting large there. Three jewels he made, and and named them Silmarils. A living fire burned within them that was blended of the light of the two trees. Of their own radiance they shone even in the dark. No mortal flesh impure could touch them, but was withered and was scorched. These jewels the elves prized beyond all works of their hands, and Manwe hallowed them, and Varda said, The fate of the elves is locked herein, and the fate of many things beside." the heart of Fanor was wound about the things that he himself had made. Yes, Arthur, it does seem that the burning of flesh... Wait, what's the... What's the word? It says flesh impure. Right. The burning of mortal flesh impure um, by the Silmarils seems intrinsic to them. Manway does hallow them here, um the uh, burning of the flesh does not seem a consequence of that hallowing, but rather uh, a consequence of their actual of their actual nature here. Um, in a sense, if you just come from the published Silmarillion, like if you hadn't read the Book of Lost Tales or anything, this passage might not really sound like much. I mean, it would be cool because it's like, hey, look, it's the Silmarils, it's Feanor, there they are, right? Um, almost exactly the same as we see them in the published Silmarillion. But, this is a big change. Um, the Silmarils are pretty low profile in the Book of Lost Tales, really. They're, I mean, they're a big deal. Feanor and his son swear this oath, and the oath screws things up all over the place. But, um... But the Silmarils aren't really a big deal, and in fact, not only are they not sort of the center of what happens at the end in the final battles and everything, and you know, sort of the fate of the Silmarils being a big deal, the fate of the Silmarils wasn't even—they they kind of drop out of the story. Um, in fact, there's even that famous um, uh, that famous little snippet of paper that Christopher Tolkien uh, you know mentions where where Tolkien wrote like. What happened to the Silmarils? <laughs> I wonder. And he, he hadn't even made up the story yet. Um, so the idea, uh, this idea that um, the fate of the elves is locked herein, this is, this is this is this is this is a new element. It's a familiar element from our point of view, but it's but but it's a new element, and we can see even new from from the sketch. The fate of the Silmarils and their involvement at the end of things in the sketch is the first time we see that stuff being integrated. Now, coming back to it from the beginning in the Quenta, we see that the the their the mythic profile of the Silmarils has really risen, and they have really taken their central place in, uh, in Tolkien's mythology. Um... All right, I'm gonna stop there because we're out of time, and I don't want to keep you guys too long. We did okay; it's not bad. We did okay. We're gaining now. Um, we're gonna continue with the Quenta next time. Um, we're doing. Or I'm, I've split the Quenta over three weeks because it's long, uh, and I want to make sure to be able to to get into it. and you don't have to read the whole thing around, aloud, but read it aloud. I want you to be able to hear what Tolkien is doing. It's, it's, it's. We're not in, we're not in non-literary plot summary anymore. We're now in literary plot summary. For you know, for for goodness' sake. So, uh, please, I, 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 I invite you to sort of savor the language there and see if there are any passages that really strike you that you think are really cool. Let me know. Um, I would be. Um, I would be uh, really interested to hear what passages you found particularly lovely, particularly striking in that way. Um, anyway, okay, I'm going to let you guys go. Good night, everybody. I will see you guys next week for more Quinta, Uh and uh, I will say good night. Thanks, everybody. Bye.